1: I'm Katie Rich I'm here with Richard Lawson hello and with David Canfield hi and with Rebecca Ford hello and we have a really special guest this week I think a first time little Gold Men guest who can correct me if I'm forgetting a, a previous appearance but Kyle Buchanan of the New York Times and author of a new book about Mad Max Fury Road hi Kyle
2: Second time, but it feels like the very first time. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, after you go through the experience of writing a book about Mad Max Free Road, the most impossible movie to ever exist, uh, it's it's a whole fresh slate in your life, right?
2: Yes. And also, you know, the pandemic has completely scrambled and upended every notion of time that I've got. So (laughs) (laughs) is it a flat circle? Is it a wide rectangle? I have no idea.
1: Smooth brains from here on out on (laughs) this podcast. We know a lot of you, and we hope that a lot of you, are discovering our podcast during award season. We're right in the thick of it. So for anyone who's new, welcome. Uh, We are Little Gold Men. We are the podcast that covers the inside track of Hollywood, from award shows, snubs, and surprises, to the rise and fall of your favorite contenders. It's an obsessive look at the hard work behind the scenes. We do it every week, and we love it. We discuss the best of film and television with new releases and new TV shows. We have interviews with all the awards contenders. You can dig back in our archives if you want to and find recent interviews with Guillermo Toro, Jamie Dornan, Penelope Cruz, Kristen Stewart, many, many more. Um, For those of you who are longtime fans of the show, we know there are a lot of you. We love hearing from you, and thank you. And if you haven't already, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or share the podcast with someone else who loves Hollywood. I know you hear this from a lot of other podcasts and haven't heard it from us much, but we really uh, want to make sure that people know that we're out there and that we can find new listeners. As for this week's episode, you'll hear us talk about the really encouraging box office numbers from the weekend for Uncharted and Dog. We'll talk about the state of the Academy's attempt at a Twitter-voted Oscar favorite and how uh, the movie Cinderella might be overtaking it. Uh, We'll look ahead to the SAG Awards, which are happening this weekend, where we'll have David and Rebecca there in person. And with our special guest, Kyle Buchanan, we'll talk about his book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Oral History of Mad Max Fury Road, which is a really excellent read. Then to close out the episode, you'll hear from David Camfield talking to SAG nominee, Oscar nominee, Troy Kotzer, star of CODA, who is a real strong contender in the Best Supporting Actor category. So before we get into large topics like SAG and Mad Max, uh, we have a little bit of news to get into, uh, starting with the fact that people are going to the movies, which is very encouraging. I'm not one of them. I have not seen Uncharted or Dog yet, although I've already been scoping out my local showtimes for Dog because I love Channing Tatum very much. Um, but Kyle, as our guest, maybe you can be the first one to weigh in. Does this mean that movies are back?
2: I hope so. Uh, I kind of think that these movies shouldn't have come out on the same day. It boggles my mind that, you know, with the sort of uh, drought that we've been in theatrically, uh, that we're not kind of spreading the wealth a little bit. Yeah. But I am happy to see that, you know, if two movies do come out, they can sort of effectively counter program one another. Um, I wish Uncharted was better, but uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll root for anything I can get.
1: Well, like Tom Holland is just the movie star now. I think we have, I mean, Channing Tatum we could talk about too, but Tom Holland is so undisputably dominant. It's very interesting to land in this place.
2: Yeah, it's also interesting to try to figure out what his evolving star persona is. You know, I think to some degree he comes off like Peter Parker in Uncharted 2, uh, not necessarily for the good of the movie, but maybe for the good of his burgeoning audience. I mean, I have a, a niece who's uh, just about to enter junior high, And for her birthday, her and all her friends got, you know, a theater all to themselves to watch Spider-Man. And my parents, who chaperoned them, said that when he took his shirt off in that movie, the screams were basically in, like, Dolby (laughs) 40X. So, you know, even though I'm watching Uncharted thinking to myself, I don't think Tom Holland is like old enough or convincing enough to even hold a beer let alone order and drink one that might not matter to the people who really care about him.
1: Richard you reviewed Dog for us and I think and talking about the other uh, movie star of the weekend Channing Tatum I think you like me have been kind of rooting for him all along so is he can can he fit in in the Tom Holland dominated movie star era is he back too?
3: Yeah I mean Dog is a weird movie that I kind of struggled to Figure out as I was writing about it and watching it. Um, I I can't quite tell where its politics are, which is okay. You know, it's the, the movies do not have to be declarative political statements by any means. But like, hmm. but there's just something odd about the tone of the movie and its and its constant shifts in tone. Um, but shining through that and consistent through that confusion is Channing Tatum, who, um, you know, I've I've never quite cotton to his like choices as an actor. I, I sometimes wish that he leaned a little less into like the surprisingly charming oaf kind of thing that he does. Um I think he's capable of more than that, um, as evidenced in Foxcatcher, where he is playing a kind of an oaf, but he's doing it in an interesting way. But yeah, in Dog, he's just, you know, he's funny, he's rakish, he's sensitive where it counts um, and all that. And yeah, so I, I think looking at the the performance of Uncharted and Dog at the box office, demographically Uncharted, predictably skewed young and male, um, whereas Dog was older and female. So not necessarily the audience you would think of for a Channing Tatum movie about the military, but there's also a Dog and also Channing Tatum's, you know, surprising warmth and, and charm that I think is Drawing in people who might not otherwise see a movie about, uh, you know, a soldier suffering from PTSD. Well,
1: it's the Magic Mike Army, right? Like people who were, you know, there to see that in theaters ten years ago. Me, my my demographic, were loyal to Channing Tatum <laughs> at this point.
0: As a member of the Channing Tatum Magic Mike Army, <laughs> as well, I feel like, um, as Richard was saying, I feel like that's the first movie. We've seen hit that older audience, you know, the messaging has been that they're just not coming out, especially during COVID to theaters. And so um, I know with Omicron finally waning, it feels like this does feel really hopeful that not just the Youngs are coming into the theaters anymore.
2: And hopeful for me because, you know, I hope HBO Max thinks a little bit more about their Magic Mike 3 uh, streaming debut <laughs> that has yeah. to come out in theaters. It has to.
1: Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, this felt like the first week in a very long time where you had kind of top to bottom good news, or maybe not top, top like Spider-Man No Way Home, but you had um, Uncharted did really well. Dog did well for what it is. And then you had stuff like Worst Person in the World crossing uh, a million at the specialty box office. And people are seeing that and Drive My Car and Parallel Mothers. I mean, I have a friend who could not get a seat at a Drive My Car screening because there was like one Showtime in her theater that day and and that's nice to me that that people are going to see these movies too um, cuz that I'm is also imagining the that...
1: 40x screams at that, that drive my car screening just like so <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it was yeah. intense
2: look yes. there's some toned bodies in drive my car too <laughs> <laughs> <That's true. laughs> i might have screamed during can
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry david i cut you off
2: no no that yeah, it, it, there are <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, sticking to our beat about the Oscars, how hard do you think the Academy is working now to get Tom Holland and or Channing Tatum and or the dog? Because the dog lives, I think, right? So the dog can also be part of the Oscars. They're going to get all three of them on stage together.
3: Yes, maybe. Though (laughs) in dog, they make repeated heavy reference to the fact that the dog's deployment in Afghanistan was very violent. And the dog was used to attack people. So it's not really like a warm, lovable
1: character.
2: It's
3: no Uggy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Uggy. No, may, may he rest, Uggie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I went to go see Uncharted in the theaters as a civilian. And it was like the first showing at a theater in lower Manhattan. And uh, it was pretty crowded. And I that sort of seemed like an interesting indicator of something. And, and then the numbers came out. And I think the thing about Uncharted, in addition to the Tom Holland thing, is obviously the video games it's based on are very, very popular um but for a video game movie it's really up there as one of the better ones it's not a great movie but it, it you know it it's it's exciting enough and fun enough that like and and i think new to some people who don't know the video games so i, I what i see with dog and uncharted doing well is is maybe hopefully and the specialty box office a little bit of renewed curiosity about mm. like what new thing is out where it's not just, you know, seeing the next installment in the Marvel world or whatever. Um, This is newish stuff that people went and sought out, which I think is great.
1: And when there's still a ton of stuff at home, you know, like the fact that people are going out when you can stay home and watch Kimmy or Inventing Anna or whatever else is out there. Like the fact that the movies are so competitive as a thing for which you would actually leave your house is really encouraging.
3: And that there are fewer movies in theaters makes the decisions for you. You know, Mm. like many, many people have spoken about like you go onto Netflix or Hulu and it's just so overwhelming and you kind of get you seize up and can't make a decision. But whereas you're like, I want to watch something. I maybe want to leave my house. Well, here are the the three new things playing this week. It's Uncharted. It's Dog. It's a werewolf movie. Let me, you know, I'll I'll roll the dice and pick one of those. And um, I don't know, for me, I I appreciate that kind of um, paired away uh, selection.
1: I didn't know there was a werewolf movie. You've you've taught me something.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it was at Sundance last year they changed the name to I think The Cursed. It's with Kelly Riley from uh, uh, Yellowstone, Yellowstone and-
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she's, she's all over my a- T V. She's got a, she's got a fan base. Um, Well, speaking of things that you choose and maybe less good news for the world, David, you were warning us last week that the hashtag for the Oscar (laughs) fan favorite vote was getting grim. Um, It appears to still be so. Uh, Deadline had a somewhat surprising report. I guess it was over the weekend that according to something, the sourcing on this is unclear. And of course, it can change moment by moment. But at that point, whoever it was, you said it said that the Camilla Cabello Cinderella was leading the Oscar fan favorite Twitter vote. Uh, in addition to a Johnny Depp movie that came out last year, barely and, like, shouldn't even qualify for any awards. Um, David, is this what you saw coming? And is uh, Camilla Cabello going to be at the Oscars to accept her Girl Bus Cinderella Oscar?
4: I did some polling this morning by searching okay. the hashtag and grimly scrolling for 10 minutes. And, yeah, it's everywhere. In fact, it is so it is so saturated, this <laughs> this campaign, that there are... Also, tons of tweets from Camila Cabela stands telling people not to reply to tweets with their votes because they're saying those don't count. I actually didn't go into the fine print to know if that's the case, but it has become, and she has been trending at various points, as has the movie. It has become a full-fledged, they're emboldened. That deadline report told them, (laughs) you can win this thing. and It's true. Yeah, all I've seen is like, I mean, aside from the, Sporadic mention of another movie, there's a lot of Army of the Dead, which seems to have outpaced Zack Snyder's Justice League after that was deemed ineligible by Deadline. What, seen, are there
1: rules that make it an eligible? Like the <laughs> rules for qualification for this are very fuzzy.
4: The deadline article said, of course, because it's a director's cut, it doesn't qualify. And I was like, of course? Like are there <laughs> are established just, rules for
1: this? This is all made up. <laughs> this, this is completely made up. Uh,
4: <laughs> and yeah, the Johnny Depp movie is also everywhere. Um, but I feel like it's still too small to actually beat Cinderella. But these are the movies we're talking about. Like, to be clear, I don't yeah. see how anyone would anything would beat them unless I'm missing something.
1: Uh, Kyle, we talked about this uh, a lot last week and they first announced it, but we haven't heard your take on this show yet. What do you make of this entire attempt at the uh, best popular Oscar redux, basically?
2: I think it's hilarious. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I might might feel differently if they were giving out an actual Oscar, which I don't believe they are. If they're just going to announce something on the air, then I love mess. I'm down for the chaos, (laughs) especially because it has been hijacked by Stan armies, and they're not even pushing the year's most talked about movies. They're pushing the year's (laughs) most forgotten movies. Uh, But it is kind of a primer. I mean, the Johnny Depp fans, I mean, anyone who's ever tweeted about him knows that there is still a very ardent fan base out there. But that doesn't necessarily translate into actual box office. You're seeing more tweets about this Johnny Depp movie than there were tickets bought for it. And I think <laughs> that's instructive to the Academy, where it's not just about, you know, mobilizing fan armies on Twitter. Converting those into actual eyeballs is the tricky thing. And when you let yourself, you know, be, be dominated by Stan warfare it's not necessarily going to end up with a result that's going to move the needle for you.
1: Although, as someone who also loves mess and doesn't really care who wins this, I do want to see how this turns out. Like, I feel like I would tune in to watch what plays out even if I wasn't invested in, in who actually gets it. Or maybe that's just me being an Oscar fan. And Well,
2: I mean, you know. like, they definitely instituted this because they thought that Spider-Man would win. And they do have, to be fair, I think there's a cheer moment in addition to the (laughs) fan favorite. Just, you know, the lamest shit. Uh, But I think in the cheer (laughs) moment, uh, very spoilery Spider-Man moments are in contention. But yes, they absolutely did not think it was going to be a Minamata Cinderella draw. (laughs) 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 And I really can't wait till whoever they've conned into announcing this uh, opens that envelope and smirks i'm gonna steal a page from the our,
3: our friends at who weekly's playbook um they have marshaled their fans to vote for w- the woman in the window um and i think that we should choose a project i don't know what that is yet but you know i think we should we should put our heads together and maybe you know because you can vote 20 times a day so i'm saying we could actually move the needle maybe a little bit
1: and wait, richard if you miss your deadlines because you're voting 20 times a day on this i'm going to call you out on it i just want to be
3: clear <laughs> oh i'm a i'm a coder so i set up an automated thing that does it for me yeah
1: I voted for The Green Knight already, just to see how the process worked. I don't know yes. if that's really, I don't know if that's the level of chaos we're looking for here, though. I need something um, dingier and weirder. Maybe Dear Evan Hansen is I was the say uh, one Evan that needs Hansen. it. I was going to say Dear Evan All right, guys.
3: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're on the hook if it happens, though. <laughs> Amy <laughs>
3: Adams somehow wins two non-Oscars oh,
4: voted by fans. No. Oh, no. And, oh, and they get her to present with a fan.
1: That oh. would be a dream. Gosh, she deserves so much better than the that. The
3: fan is just Ben Platt wearing a fake
1: mustache. <laughs> <laughs> um Rebecca I feel like you also appreciate the chaos
0: of this but is this it's slightly terrifying the way this is panning out I think it is a little terrifying I mean it's clearly going to be a one one time experiment if it does end up being something like the Cinderella movie um and I just I have a hard time imagining this presenter opening the envelope and then not giving an Oscar like is someone coming to the stage for this or what what does it look like that makes it feel like a moment at all I just yeah I'm really curious how they're gonna pull this off but uh my
1: guess is that like Camila Cabello or whoever else is like notified ahead of time and shows up in the wings but like we don't know that they're there like it would make sense to have someone there to do something
0: I mean that would make sense if it's Tom Holland and he you know comes down on stage <laughs> but I don't I don't know Andrew
1: <laughs> Garfield's already gonna be there They yeah, they had true. it all worked out Um, Well, before we get to the Oscars and whatever this entails, we do have another award show, and really our first award show of the season to look forward to. The SAG Awards are happening this weekend. Uh, Kyle and David and Rebecca, you guys will all be there in person, which is thrilling. Um, And you can tell us maybe what you expect from uh, the first formal event in quite a long time. Um, But we should talk about... Uh, who's going to win? Like We haven't written our predictions yet. Kyle, I don't know if you've written yours yet either. You can, We'll can just crib off of your worksheet and uh, take all your answers.
2: I mean, it's exciting because it feels very up in the air because yeah. we didn't get a televised Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. This feels uh, kind of messy and fluid and up for grabs.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, pop quiz, what won the drama Golden Globe? Like, it's not Easy to remember off the top of your, I guess, I think it was Power of the Dog?
2: Power of the Dog, yeah.
1: Okay, all right. I know what
2: won Comedy or Musical, the funniest movie of the year, West Side Story. (laughs) 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 The best medicine.
1: Well, I only remember the tweet, yeah. (laughs) If it weren't for that chaotic tweet, I might not remember it at all. Um, But so, so David, what are you expecting from A, being at the SAG Awards in person, and B, um, what's actually going to win?
4: I think it'll be a nice night. I mean, it is the first formal awards ceremony of, of... like a normal size or a relatively normal size in a very long time, like press actually sitting in the room is kind of a major thing. Uh, We haven't had that since two years ago. Um, In terms of winners, it's really up in the air. I think just over half of the SAG Award-nominated actors went on to Oscar nominations, so it was pretty low matching rate. Um, So we could definitely see some people. You could see an Emily Blunt Quiet Place win here, you know, where she's not she wasn't nominated at the Oscars, but she won her SAG Award to throw that category ever further into chaos. Um, I mean, House of Gucci is an interesting contender here. It's the most nominated movie. Best Actress feels completely chaotic right now. And Lady Gaga is there in a movie that this guild seems to really like. So, you know, that could be an interesting surprise. But I feel like in the supporting categories, you're going to see... Front runners get their first win and I think it's going to be Ariana DeBose and who's not being predicted as much but Troy Kotzer I think uh, is going to pull it out here because Coda is nominated for Best Ensemble and I think he has some heat um, that people aren't quite identifying yet but in the lead categories probably Will Smith and um, I don't know I'm going to stop now because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting to the category that I have no idea um, but yeah that would be what I
3: would guess right now
1: Richard who's going to win Best Actress you have to decide
3: Oh, um, I mean, I I (laughs) I wonder if there (laughs) might be because when did the voting close? Because maybe is there some sort of like
1: this week, I believe. Yeah.
3: So there's definitely time for people who feel bad for Gaga not getting the Oscar nomination Mm -hmm. to vote for her here, though. Actors also, you know, they're responsible for the voting for the Academy Award nominations. And those actors didn't like her enough. So I I don't I don't know. I I uh, it's chaos, but I think Kidman because I think she's going to win on the Oscar, too.
1: Yeah, you've been on that for a while, I think. Or I guess, I mean, a lot of us have. And it does seem like, David, what you are saying about frontrunners being cemented, like Kidman would be the one where we've all been saying, like, oh, yeah, she's probably going to get it. And this one would really lock that in place. But if she didn't win, chaos, mess from here on out. Uh, Rebecca,
0: what are you expecting? Well, I'm actually pretty curious about the lead actor category. I know we've all been saying Will Smith, Will Smith, Will Smith all season. But I do wonder if we might get a... Surprise, like I don't know. I feel like Benedict, just the way the power of the dog has been playing in other nominations, could could win here, or Andrew mm-hmm. Garfield. I know tick tick boom has a lot of, at least uh, for Andrew, a lot of love. So I, I mean, I'd love to see a, a surprise there because um, I do think Will will probably get the Oscar. Um, but I, I agree with what everyone's saying. I think there's a lot up in the air, and I think it's going to be so fun to be in that room while that's happening because I've, I've missed that feeling of looking at other people's faces when they <laughs> win or lose. So I'm really excited to be there.
1: Yeah, Kyle, this is something we've talked a lot about this season, about not having that reading the room vibe, which I think is such yeah. a big part for people who report on the season as it's happening. So what are you anticipating from actually seeing people react to these movies IRL?
2: Well, I mean... Uh... Two years ago, when Parasite won the main SAG award, the way the room reacted to that, that standing, oh, that look at us and the good we do feeling, that was, I think, one of the first indications that Hollywood wanted to keep the good times going and mm-hmm. that it would triumph also at the Oscars. But I do think it's important to know as we you know, try to figure out these, these predictions is that this is not going to be be voted on solely by actors. I mean, AFTRA is a really big, Mm -hmm. expansive branch that includes, you know, radio journalists, TikTokers. And so that makes me hopeful because, again, as stated before, I love (laughs) mass, that we might see something like a Lady Gaga win because this could be a make good for her Oscar snub. And also, are TikTokers going to vote for Nicole Kidman? I just don't see it.
1: How many TikTokers are in AFTRA? This is the first I'm hearing of this. It I mean, it's a, a wild though.
2: group. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a big, expansive group. It only keeps growing. You know, I mean, the SAG nominating committee is much smaller, but it is a kind of random cross section. Uh, and that's why, even though there is some overlap with uh, who the uh, the Oscars actor branch went to There is a very intriguing uh, underlap in some of these categories, and I hope that we get wild things happening like Emily Blunt winning for Quiet Place when she wasn't even nominated for an Oscar. Like, let's do it. Let's keep this Oscar race in suspense until the very end. Yeah. I made a joke last week
3: about uh, the hype house hosting next year's Oscars, but I don't know David, Rebecca, <laughs> Kyle. You guys might have to start interviewing hype house members and Addison Ray to get their voting preferences. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they, if all these TikTok people are.
1: We start having anonymous Oscar voters, but it's Addison Ray, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, It's not wait. anonymous if you,
2: if you promote yourself, Addison. She care. Keep, keep your voices down, or Addison Ray is going to be on that Oscar stage <laughs> announcing the Oscar fan favorite. <laughs> yeah.
1: I look forward to her ripped jeans on the Oscar stage and uh, setting new fashion trends.
3: The in memoriam reel is just like TikTokers who got canceled in- <laughs> last month.
1: Um, we haven't talked as much about the television side of SAG, but it it will be fascinating because you've got this mix of uh, heavy hitters from last year's Emmys, like uh, *Mayor of Easttown*, and then *Squid Game* popping in, um, which David, you were um, writing about, kind of how Netflix was giving it a really big push. Um, Anybody have anything they're especially rooting for to see other than, uh, you know, the welcome level of chaos we like at SAGs? Any, like, newcomers that could get their first shot at recognition here?
4: Going to be tough, but I hope Jennifer Coolidge pulls through in uh, the limited actress race. It's I'm sure it's Kate Winslet's to lose, um, yeah. which is mainly due to the fact that SAG puzzlingly does not support. Uh, divide lead and supporting uh, for TV performances only. Uh, And Jennifer Coolidge feels like a really strong front runner for the supporting actress Emmy. Um, But I just thought she was so brilliant in that show. And, um, I would love to see her on stage. (laughs) I'm just (laughs) waiting for that first moment that we get Jennifer Coolidge on stage. Um, And her and Mary Mary Bartlett as well, honestly. Um, Yeah, and Murray Bartlett
1: seems like he could stand. You know, he's up against uh, Ewan McGregor and Evan Peters, who both won Emmys, which, again, points to the weirdness of this category. Um, Yep. But it feels like he could win for sure.
2: Totally. And HBO is very conspicuously not announcing Jennifer Coolidge for White Lotus Season 2 to try to Mm. boost her candidacy for here and the Emmys. You know, oh yeah, she's just a supporting actor in a limited series. Wink, wink. This is your only (laughs) chance to award her. Wink, wink.
1: (laughs) It is nuts that they get to still compete as limited series when Season 2 has been announced since like, right when the first season ended, I think. like It's been such a foregone conclusion and yet here we are.
2: I mean, most of the cast will turn over, but she is the big link. And in every single list of cast members that HBO releases, they are not including her. And they've had her locked in for forever.
1: (laughs) Uh, I mean, they would be foolish not to, right? Yeah, Kyle, who are you pulling for TV-wise?
2: I'd like to see the Squid Game actors get some love. Um, I l- really love The Great. I think Elle Fanning deserves a little bit. It's hard for me. I think they're going to go with the, you know, predictable choices. I think Succession and Mayor of Easttown are going to clean up. But maybe it's because we didn't get the Golden Globes this year, which often go for the new and the exciting uh, yeah. at the expense of the traditional. But I'd like to see maybe SAG do it and and freshen things up a bit. Yeah. I don't know. I've
3: been hearing that all the girls who went after West Elm Caleb on TikTok are big maid fans. So maybe Margaret Wally is going to eke out a win there.
1: Don't underestimate their power. They're a massive voting block. I mean, I'm looking at the uh, comedy ensemble lineup, which is really, really strong. And as, you know, one of five people who watched last season of The Kaminsky Method, I think that deserves to be there, too. But only, only Murders in the Building, I would really like to see it kind of start a run, especially because that ensemble is so... Incredible. I don't know how many of the people in that building are part of the ensemble listed on SAG because the rules are always weird. But like Jane had a Just get it going. Get her that SAG award. SAG
4: tends to be a year or so behind on the TV side, but this will be an interesting test of how strong Ted Lasso is for season two um, Mm -hmm. because it cooled off with the backlash and the backlash to the backlash. And it just, it never seemed to take off as just like a great season that was widely, happily regarded. Um, So, and Only Murders was, I think, uh, even though it's newer. So it'll be interesting if it can uh, knock either Sudeikis or the ensemble off, um, both of which feel possible, but uh, unlikely to me.
2: But I don't think you can underrate how many TikTokers are going to be eager to vote for the Kaminsky method.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Kyle and David and Rebecca, you guys will be there in a room. The rest of us will be watching on television. Um, what's something that we should all look out for that that you know maybe you'll observe better in the room, but you can spot on television either in terms of what's popular or even like who's going to run into each other at their tables and you know have a um, Brad and Jen moment two years later.
0: Uh, we just found out about the opening act, which is uh, Hamilton reunion of some kind I don't know we don't know what they're doing but uh you know the the biggest successes to come out of that show are are taking the stage so I feel like I'm just really curious to see the energy at this event you know I feel like we've all been locked up and and um not at these sorts of things and there is always a little cynicism I think with award shows but I feel like having them open the show probably on a very bouncy and positive note and I hope that's the energy in the room as well even though we've all kind of been through the ringer this late year with are there going to be events are there not are we going they're all canceled etc cetera, etc cetera. so I'm 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 excited to definitely feel the energy in the room well, let's not forget that David
1: Diggs was nominated for a SAG award last year for Hamilton in the, mm-hmm. the oddest <laughs> long tail for an awards project in history uh, so there just can't be an award show without Hamilton in there somewhere the streak is alive.
2: Or an award show without David Diggs showing up somewhere. I feel yeah. like during that uh that barren time of the Zoom award season from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one, he was basically on Zoom nonstop presenting for <laughs> just about anything you needed. And his yeah. house and his suits were lovely.
1: Yeah. Him and Lily Collins doing the Sag War nominations last year were like, her, she didn't show up for 15 minutes or like she was frozen and it was just technical issues. And he handled it like a champ. But man, I felt for them.
3: You know how at the top of the show they do the um, or in years past, they've done like the, you know, I'm Jean Smart and I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope they throw a little shade at the Academy and they're like, you know, I'm Sandra Oh, and I'm a vaccinated actor
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> to further distinguish themselves from the wait, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Because you do have to submit vaccination and two tests, two PCR tests to get in uh, one submitted two days before the SAG awards and one on site just to get in, or at least we do. I don't know if they're bending the rules <laughs> somewhat as the Oscars are for the stars. They want to come.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we haven't talked about this as what the guessing game is going to promote about who who would be at SAG or who would not be at SAG, but will be at the Oscars. And I guess that really kicks into gear with the Oscars, but it's uh, one more wrinkle. Okay, Kyle, so we have you here both because you obsess over the Oscars like we do and we can talk about this stuff forever, but you also have a book out, uh, which is incredibly exciting. And today we're talking to you on the published day of your oral history of Mad Max Fury Road. Sorry, I'm going to get the title wrong. So what's the title of your book, Kyle?
2: It is called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, The Wild and True Story of Mad Max Fury Road.
1: This is the result of kind of years of work because you did an oral history for The Times and then um, kind of spun that into this book, which you've been working on throughout the pandemic. And it's this massive chronicle of this massive movie that is kind of about the nitty gritty of filmmaking, but all this like weird insider Hollywood stuff that I think was a surprise to you as you were writing it and to me, like the fact that it started when they wanted to make a TV show out of Mad Max In like the 90s, which is how George Miller got the idea to do Fury Road at all. Um, So for you, like what was what was kind of the elemental surprise as you went into this and like what made it feel like it was going to be this huge book and kind of a, a story worthy of telling in this format?
2: I mean, there were a ton. I had heard so many stories over the years about things that went down on that set that, of course, they didn't talk about when they first did publicity. But I thought maybe when the dust settled, uh, pun half intended, (laughs) that they'd be a little bit more game. I I knew Charlize uh, is the sort of person where if you're going to ask her tough questions, she'll give you tough answers. She kind of thrives on it. I just felt like the right moment. I mean, the movie's a masterpiece. When we talk about, you know, why isn't Spider-Man nominated for Best Picture or all these other Oscars? You know, there are big popular entertainments that the Oscars are eager to nominate, like Mad Max Fury Road. You just have to bring it artistically, and not every blockbuster does. And that one did. And it really rewards your scrutiny as a viewer, um, but also me as an author, every time I dug into, you know, things that I'd heard, I heard even more incredible, crazy stories and dug up a whole lot of collaborators that hadn't ever sort of publicly talked about what they'd done on the movie. Like Kelly Marcel, who's, uh, you know, she wrote Saving Mr. Bank. She worked on Fifty Shades of Grey and she was Tom Hardy's kind of personal writer uh, while the movie was shooting in Namibia. And all sorts of, yeah, all sorts of crazy things went down. And also for listeners of the Little Gold Men podcast, it might be exciting to know that when I was uh, working on my very first draft of this book, the longest chapter was the award season chapter. Yeah. I had to cut it down, but uh, we do have your own Richard Lawson appearing throughout the book and in that chapter.
1: Uh, Richard, would you like to spoil your presence in the book and talk about Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> Why you were a vaunted expert?
2: I
3: actually did the audiobook and I'm doing a lot of Australian accents. It's, it's yeah. kind of a horror. I don't know why. <laughs> well, actually,
2: it. Richard, who's playing you in the audiobook?
3: Oh, God, that's right. It's um, New Earth, right? Um, the a George Newbern from Father George of the new Bride. bride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He plays the husband, the, new, the soon-to-be husband of Father of the Bride, voices wow. me in the audiobook, which is great. Wow. But I think what's something that's so cool and valuable about this book is that Well, I'm in it, obviously, but also uh, (laughs) that you watch that movie and you're like, how the hell did this happen? It feels like George Miller like peeled back the membrane to reveal like another dimension. It feels so fully formed. You know it's not. You know that there's so much craft and so much, you know, even before they, they rolled on day one, like so much work put into it. And so it's really cool to see it not deconstructed in a negative way, but just sort of examined closely from you know from hearing from the people who did it because uh the movie is such a is, is a unique thing that uh feels totally otherworldly. And so I appreciated the compliment um of of getting the nuts and bolts of of this really crazy masterpiece.
1: Yeah, speaking of nuts and bolts, the part where the guys who built all the rigs uh talk about the junkyard they had in the back where it was like, you have to make it out of material you can find here. And the Du Fourier's gun is made out of a bed pan. Like all of like the- it's insane to make a movie that way. No one would ever do that. But the fact that they did is what makes it so incredible.
2: And it was kind of like a little Project Runway type competition where they had this <laughs> big junkyard and the guys would run out and try to salvage stuff and compete over, you know, really cool items and go back and make something really awesome. Uh, yeah. It's just an unconventional you know, challenge. <laughs> it, it truly is. The whole movie was an unconventional materials challenge.
1: I mean, it feels like a blockbuster like this maybe will never get made again, despite our optimism about the box office. Like, it's a unique thing. And its Oscar run feels that way to me sometimes, too. It's such an ideal Oscar movie where it's this huge popular hit and it wins a ton of Oscars. I mean, Kyle, do you feel like nothing can replicate that Mad Max level of success, at least the way that we have Hollywood structured now?
2: Truly, the only thing that can probably get close is the one they already have locked and loaded, which is this Furiosa prequel that they're working on, which, you know, originally they had written way before they shot Fury Road. It was going to be an anime at one point. They went pretty far down the road of that. But now it's going to star Anya Taylor-Joy and Chris Hemsworth as the villain. I'm super curious about that. Everyone I talked to said that's a killer script. And very different than Fury Road, even though it has a lot of the same vehicles, a lot of the same action. It's much more dialogue driven. So, yeah, I'm excited about that. But, yeah, I mean, we are getting to a point where the only things we see in big, on the big screen are, you know, really small budget movies and big budget movies that are more typical franchise cookie cutter stuff that aren't shot exceptionally well. You can see you know, how sort of boringly pre-visualized they are. They don't feel like they come from some you know, auteur who was allowed to realize his crazy vision. Um, in fact, they're kind of more executive driven. And this very much isn't. Fury Road is so, not just the product of George Miller's mind, but if you read the book, all these people had really key collaborations and they were all really willing to push things to the limit. And you don't get that very often, if at all, from franchise filmmaking these days.
1: Yeah. As a James Cameron diehard, maybe Avatar 2 will be the next uh, version. It's the movie he wants to make. We know that. Whether or not it's good is uh, up for debate, I guess.
2: I mean, I heard a rumor that the Avatar sequel is going to be called The Seed Bearer. And that is absolutely (laughs) an example of just a tourism run amok if he gets to call it that. And I'll never stop laughing and loving that title if they go with it. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, James Cameron is also one of the few directors that sort of, of appear with Uh, George Miller when it comes to shooting action, you know, and, and such very different temperaments on set. You know, we all know how James Cameron could be when he wants to make a movie, very hard charging. The crazy thing about George Miller, and I think the reason why he kept running into trouble, not just on this movie, but on, on other movies, is he seems like, you know, your kindly grandfather. He's not very tall or imposing. He speaks in this sweet, twinkly voice. And so people think they can kind of run roughshod over him. And what they find out is that he will not quit. When he has something in his mind, he will not stop until he has shot it and he has printed it on film.
1: And yet he dragged all these people out into the desert and in his nice, gentle way, got them to do the most insane things you've ever seen on film.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it's a really crazy story. And... I think people will assume that this movie is written for Mad Max fans, which it absolutely is. But it's really written for people who listen to this podcast. It's written for the people who who love movies but want to know, like, okay, so what else? Tell me, like, the inside scoop. Tell me the stuff that everybody knows but they haven't actually said. You know, I've read a lot of really great books about the making of movies. But, you know, things like The Devil's Candy or Monster are about movies that didn't turn out so well. And this is a crazy making-of story where the movie really, against all odds, turned out to be a masterpiece. And I think that's kind of fun and juicy for people who want to know a little bit more about how movies are made.
1: And we should say people can read an excerpt of one of the juiciest parts, which is the uh, the tension between Tom Hardy and Charlie's there. And We have an excerpt from your book on VF.com. So uh, read that and then buy the whole book.
2: Yes, please do check it out. <laughs> And then listen to the audio version. Uh, let Richard know how he sounds uh, with the father of the bridegroom.
1: Richard, I'm so excited for your IMDb credit on here. A, uh, and they'll have all your like most popular quotes on your page. It's gonna be great. <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: at long last. <laughs>
1: Okay, David, we're going to close the show by hearing your conversation with Troy Kotzer, who is SAG-nominated, Oscar-nominated. Um, as you said, feels like he might be a frontrunner in the supporting actor category. So what can you tell us about this conversation?
4: He's just got so much joy <laughs> to, to give out. And he's he's a really lovely, I think, overwhelmed person right now. He's he's trended a lot for his unbelievable reactions to various nominations, like the BAFTA nomination, the Oscar nomination. Um, so we talked— shortly after the Oscar nomination, uh, and really just talked about his road to this point. Um, I also put him on the spot, uh, <laughs> where recently, uh, David Kurz, who's the artistic director of Deaf West Theater, uh, said he would be a huge star if he were a hearing person and, um, mm.
1: you
4: know, what that means to him. And, and I think he's been thinking a lot about that. Um, everyone's suddenly realizing this is an incredible actor who just hasn't had opportunities in Hollywood to, to show that too often.
1: And we should say, technically, you guys spoke on Zoom through an interpreter. So what are people going to hear exactly? Yeah,
4: so people will hear uh, Troy's incredible interpreter for what he signs.
1: And I assume seeing Troy Kotzer sign in an interview is as captivating as it is in watching Encoda.
4: Oh, yeah. Um, Including when he talks about vulgar sign language while (laughs) (laughs) doing some vulgar signing for me. Uh, Yeah, he's a he's a wonder.
1: Now you have some tools in your tool belt for uh, next.: I told, them, time. I told them. <laughs> I told them I am
4: learning, and we're all learning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear your conversation with Troy Kotzer.:
4: I'll start by congratulating you on your Oscar nomination, which was very richly deserved. Um, and I, I wanted to start by asking you about uh, becoming quite the hit on social media for your reactions to these nominations. There's a real sense of joy in them. What has this recognition over the past year meant to you?
5: I feel like I've had a long journey going to this finish line and I didn't know how long it would take. And if it was with persistence, it would just be a matter of time. And I feel like I earned an honorary PhD with these nominations. (laughs) And of course I'm extremely joyful. And it's, it's such a blessing because so many people, there's thousands of talented actors out there all over the world. And I just... Happened to be like one hair out of this beard here, and that has been my opportunity. And really, it really struck me to be recognized. And it's it's a part of history. It's documented, and it, that's permanent. And if, whether I win or lose, it doesn't matter. It's just documented in the history books because you know, for ninety four years, everyone who has been nominated is documented in the history books. And I'm so honored to be able to join join their team. And it's such an honor.
4: Mm. You made CODA, I believe several years ago now, but it's still taking up uh, so much of your life, day-to-day life. There aren't many films or, or projects that that would do that for, for anybody. Has your relationship to it, I suppose, evolved the longer
5: that this has gone on to, to CODA? It's been truly amazing from Sundance to now and having being recognized at Sundance with those awards really made an impression on me. And of course, that led to Apple TV Plus. And looking back, I understand why Apple bought our film for $25 setting a new record, and released it quite early in August. It wasn't during Oscar season. And so I was wondering about that. And then I'm realizing that this momentum is really continuing ever since August. And even through today, people are seeing the film for the first time, or even watching it again, and they feel inspired by the positive message of our film and so people really feel like they're reaching out with their heart to so many people and it's like sharing this community and this bond and and being able to celebrate and enjoy and talk about it and learning new things especially vulgar asl (laughs) i myself have loved learning about vulgar asl (laughs) That's
4: the best way to start learning any language. Exactly. This is, this is a true learning experience for us all. <laughs> you, you mentioned Sundance. You took this film to virtual Sundance, where it was a sensation. Um, but you couldn't be in a room experiencing it with people. Uh, and last fall, you started gathering for in-person screenings for award season and reuniting with your director, Sean Heater and the cast. Uh, and even now, I know you're, you're, you're in L.A. Doing, still doing these kinds of screenings. Um, what has that been like going from experiencing the movie in a kind of vacuum to really sharing the joy and the message of
5: it with people, as you say? When I was growing up, I always look forward to Sundance. And I wanted to really go to Park City one day and socialize with everyone where they've been hosting, hosting it. Until, of course, with COVID, everything has changed and I had to celebrate alone in my room over Zoom. And with our cast, we were just waving to each other over Zoom. You know, I wanted to hug all of them, but we couldn't. But we celebrated anyway, and we had a chat on Zoom. And so, of course, it was a different experience. But thank God for technology. So we were managed to stay connected no matter where we were and whatever might happen throughout the pandemic. We were still able to connect with each other. Of course, it would have been even better to go to Park City in person. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. So everyone was staying home during the pandemic. And so CODA kind of, in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because families were together and it could remind them to cherish their families by watching our film. So it was kind of an interesting moment that our film and the pandemic happened at about the same time. And so of course it has been such an interesting experience for me, but I still feel like when we get together for interviews or panels, I get to see the cast again. It's like a family reunion and we can find time to celebrate together. And really, it's great to have those reunions now. Mm-hmm. I spoke with Sean a little
4: while ago, and she told me one thing she loved about these reunions is hearing, say, your perspective on the making of the movie or the making of a scene that she wouldn't have had during the making of the movie, and it had taken a long time for you to be able to come back together and, and really
5: reflect on the making of the movie. Have you, have you found that as well? When I, when I first got the script, I could understand that Sean had written it in English. And But even though it was in English, not ASL, I understood her intention for Frank Rossi's lines, especially the jokes. And so we had to to adapt the English to the ASL. And in sign language, you really have many choices that you can expand on. And so a lot of times the choices I would make, Sean would like it even better than the written English in the script. And so I really had creative freedom to bring that authenticity forward as much as I could, So looking back, that was one of my best memories, thinking back now. And working with Marley, I learned so much from her. And it seemed like Marley and I just had so much fun working together. It felt like, you know, the deaf community is typically quite small. And so I see Marley time and time again, even around just before even working with her. And I remember being out on that fishing boat looking back. Because, you know, I grew up on Arizona in the desert. We don't have any whales in Arizona. It was like putting myself into a different world, being out at sea and having that experience way out on a fishing boat. You know, I never fished my whole life. And so looking back, you know, I'm from the desert. And so looking back, that impacted me. You know, we might have had a swimming pool in the back, but that's about it. Hmm. Um, I'm curious how the role has stayed with you in the
4: time since you made the film. Um, How would you describe the experience of to your to what you were saying, becoming Frank and um putting these kinds of personal touches into the role. Um and how did it feel leaving him when when filming
5: wrapped? I I heard you you kept the beard for a while. (laughs) I really had to dive into Frank Rossi as a character because in the past a lot of roles for deaf people tended to be the victim or someone to have sympathy for. The hearing people would take care of the poor deaf person. And Mm -hmm. you know, I had to take these jobs to pay my electric bill. (laughs) But as Frank, he's a hard worker, he's fun, he loves his family, he wants to protect and cherish them. And I feel like Frank Rossi is a hero. And so that was a perfect role for me to take on. And so after they offered me the job, they said, don't shave or cut your hair for five months before the first day of shooting. And so we had to go there two weeks early to rehearse and train with real fishermen out on a fishing boat and follow their weird schedule. And so they're on like a vampire schedule. They work in the dark and during the daytime, they they drink in the bar and then they go home to sleep. And this is in the morning. And so the way they walk is different. The way they behave is different. So over those two weeks, I really was able to take that all in and really become the character of Frank Rossi. And after wrapping up, I wasn't ready to let go of him. I felt like he was still in me. You know, I missed that family. I missed him as a character and I wasn't ready to let go. And I wasn't ready to trim my beard. And I still wanted to see Frank in the mirror. And so when I cut my beard, Frank was gone. And so it took that time to disconnect. And so if you want to see Frank, you can always see him on Apple TV+. Plus. He'll always be there. Yes, that's very true.
4: Did you find that was a new
5: experience for you? Feeling reluctant to let a character go? I didn't want to let go because... I felt like it might be my first and last. I probably won't ever be able to play Frank Rossi again. I loved the vulgar sign language. You don't often see that in deaf roles. And so it was hard for me to disconnect from Frank. And I couldn't imagine finding an even better character than Frank. That was my concern. And so that was one reason why it was hard for me to let go of him.
4: In terms of working with Sean and and bringing in things like vulgar sign language, as you say, how did, how did those conversations evolve over the course of the making of the movie where uh,
5: as you say, she got increasingly, you know, she liked your contributions. It was important before arriving on set to keep in the back of my mind. It's expensive to make a movie. Mm -hmm. I hope the investors feel like it was worth their investment because they had faith and believed in our movie. So I wanted to bring my best, forward because to give the editors the best choices and even sometimes a small improv improvisation is even better than the script so i'd have to have that conversation with sean to make sure i was satisfying her vision and so i wanted to give them some options and some choices and so during post-production for hearing actors if there's mistakes they can f- use adr And so with ADR, you can't use that with a deaf actor. It's not designed for me. If I make a mistake with my sign language, you can't fix it in post, but you can Mm. fix audio errors in post. So on set, I wanted to give as much as I could to get it right, to not have to worry about, you know, like they say, fixing it in posts. You know what I mean? So I had to keep that all in mind with my performance. And I like to surprise the other actors with a little (laughs) bit of improv. It's like feeding them some raw material and capturing a raw reaction. And so I don't want to become a machine and a robotic and just say my lines. I wanted it to be raw and emotional and real. And I wanted things to happen in real time in the environment they were in, in each scene.
4: Can you tell me about one moment of improv that um, you were really happy with the way it went or
5: the way you surprised an actor? There were two actors in one shot, Opposite me. And so I had to really feed them because I wanted to support their performance too. And so a lot of times they didn't expect it. So what capturing that moment is great. And then the reverse shot, I had to go, go ahead and kind of have the same intention as I had improv the time before because ASL has many options, you know, just like English does. And so sometimes I'd play with props. So there's one scene, the doctor's office scene. Mm -hmm. and my character, Frank, as a smoker, and I thought about, oh, he's going to have a lighter in his pocket. So I I said, hey, these balls are burning, and I held the lighter underneath my hand and surprised everyone. Oh, wow. (laughs) And things like that, I would just kind of improv to try and bring a bit more and get that element of surprise and raw reaction.
4: Mm. One of my favorite parts about Frank as a character is you have those sillier, more ridiculous moments. And then he's also a very deeply felt character and a lot of uh, very intense emotional scenes. Um, You have to play. One of my favorites is uh, the scene with uh, Amelia where she sings for you and you feel her neck vibrations. Um, and, And I read that harken back
5: to a personal moment for you. Is that correct? I have a daughter in real life who is a CODA. She's 16 years old. And sometimes I see her playing music. And so I When I'm walking by, I see her practicing the piano. So out of curiosity, I walked up to the piano to check on her. So I put my hand on the piano to feel the vibration of the piano. And I made that connection to my daughter. It's very common that CODAs struggle to get their deaf parents to understand their passion for music. And so there's these moments where we can find that connection between father and daughter. And for Frank, I didn't want to be flat or like a one-note pony. I wanted to have an arc. I wanted to carry those emotions where you see all of the color of Frank's character. And so I'm very proud of make the choices that we made. And we had a lot of trust. Sean had the trust and she believed in my work. And so it was a truly amazing experience and it's a once in a lifetime experience, really. Mm. And now when I'm dead and gone, I can have a smile on my face.
4: (laughs) To that point, do you find that coming off of this role, say, your opportunities are able to expand? I'm curious what that next chapter is going to look like for you, because you mentioned
5: feeling like this could be first and last for a role like this. So I've received several scripts. I really appreciate that Hollywood is keeping an open mind because a lot of these scripts are written without a deaf role in mind. But now they're curious, and we're having meetings with some producers talking about how we could change a hearing role into a deaf role. So it's great. It's a new experience for Hollywood, and it's a wonderful step forward. And there's a project coming up I'm working on called Flash Before the Bang. It will probably be my next project, and it's a true story about a team of eight deaf runners. And I play the head coach at the Oregon School for the Deaf, and their track and field team this is inspired by a true story. They win the state championship competing as an underdog against all hearing teams. And so I'm really excited to see more and more deaf roles moving forward. And, you know, we're going to be able to see this cultural transformation and these doors beginning to open. Like you see deaf actors in the Eternals and A Quiet Place 1 and 2. And now we see this more and more now, which is amazing. And there are so many stories to tell. And there's a long history of storytelling in the deaf community. And now finally, we're able to share them. Mm -hmm.
4: As an actor who's been in the industry for many years between screen and theater, it does feel like, especially with a movie like Coda, things are finally perhaps changing. Uh, But have you been frustrated over the years for the lack of
5: progress that we've seen in Hollywood uh, for deaf actors? I think Hollywood can be described with one word, fear. They don't know how to write a deaf character. They're so worried about audio and sound and background music. And I think CODA, when we had our moment of silence, it was about 30 seconds of silence in our film. And it made hearing people even feel anxious just with 30 seconds of silence. And that's what deaf people experienced their whole lives, uh, that silence. And so it made them aware and not take for granted their hearing privilege. And it's a good message to increase the awareness. and give people a fly on the wall view into my culture. And now looking in the future, I feel that there'll be less fear in Hollywood. And now they're looking for a new perspective. And so I'm very happy to help them work with people and help Hollywood out in portraying these types of experiences. You know, I'm not here to criticize. I understand from my personal experience and my 35 year journey as an actor that All of these barriers and oppression, and they would ask me in auditions, can you talk? And another deaf actor who could speak better than me would get the role. Uh And so I saw these challenges, and really, Frank Rossi was just the perfect role. He was completely deaf, and here I am. Hmm.
4: Can you tell me about the first time that you watched Coda, given all that, and and given that it does give you a screen role unlike any you'd, you'd had before?
5: When I first sat in a live audience and watched Coda with an audience, my whole life, I wouldn't be able to react at jokes at the same time as hearing audience member members. I didn't have closed captioning or access until Coda. And so I was watching it on the big screen and I saw deaf and hearing audience members, senior citizens, maybe some people who had lost their hearing later in life, react at the same time simultaneously. And I've never really seen that. I've been waiting for such a long time to see that. And CODA really felt like it could connect the audience members together under one roof for the first time. And that's what's so beautiful about our film.
4: Yeah, that's very true. I'm going to put you on the on the spot a little bit here. Uh, David Kurz, who's the artistic director of Deaf West Theater in Los Angeles, recently said, um, if Troy were a hearing person, his star would have risen many, many years ago. I- I'm curious what you make of that. I, I mean... I am learning about you through this season and I was uh, honestly really stunned by your performance. Um,
5: I think Hollywood's got to catch up a little bit. (laughs) I agree with you. It's been really a blessing to have Deaf West theater in that stage. If it didn't exist, I really don't know what platform I could perform on and what would happen to me. So I'm grateful to Deaf West to keep running to help me benefit as an actor working with so many different directors and so if I was hearing, sure, there would have been more opportunities for me. But being deaf, they just those opportunities weren't, weren't there. And so I feel like the stars have aligned and this has all happened for a reason. And I was able to now experience that change and give people a new perspective. And that's what has been amazing. And now looking back, all these people message me and say, hey, I saw you on stage 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And I feel like we're still one family. And so it's been a beautiful part of being in the business.
1: That does it for this week's show. You can find us at Vanity Fair, including the excerpt from Kyle Buchanan's book about Mad Max. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And David.
2: David Canfield 97.
1: And Kyle, please share where to find you on Twitter and your book and everything else.
2: I'm on Twitter at Kyle Buchanan. You can read my column, The Projectionist. It goes online in the New York Times every Wednesday, in print every Thursday, and you can buy Blood, Sweat, and Chrome wherever books are sold.
1: This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best reason to go support international art house cinema goes to Kyle Buchanan.
2: There's some toned bodies in Drive My card.